0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm talking with Carrie Purcell, author of From Afro Ben to Fun Home: A Cultural History of Feminist Theater. Carrie, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So, a lot of the people I interview on the show are theater academics, but you're more on the theater journalism side. Could you tell us a bit about how you became an arts journalist? Sure.
1: Excuse me. Mike. Um, well, I guess to quote uh, to quote Antoinette Perry, I am just a fool for theater. Um, it was always just what made me happiest, even as a kid. Um, seeing it, talking about it, writing about it, um, getting the piano books for every show I'd ever seen or every uh, animated Disney movie musical from my childhood, and learning how to play each and every song. Mm. Um, and I was in some local theater productions as a child in Maine, but quickly learned that I. Didn't exactly have a lot of performing talent, (laughs) Um, but I was really happy to write about the shows. And I went to Emerson College for undergrad, and my dorm was located right in the middle of Boston's downtown theater district, Uh, just a few steps from the Colonial Theater, the Wang Theater, the Schubert Theater. I remember when my mom and stepfather dropped me off for college, my mother looked around and said, oh, you're going to be broke in a week. (laughs) and I was hopefully you
0: made good use of the student rush prices
1: (laughs) (laughs) I did and uh, I was a literature and journalism major I hadn't decided starting out college that I wanted to focus on arts journalism but began covering um, pretty much every production on campus with a school paper and learned that I really loved writing about it and also I got free seats Uh, so after, um, a couple years of that, and I also interned for the Boston edition of Playbill, my sophomore and junior year of college, I decided this was what I wanted to focus on. Uh, so I moved here to New York right after graduating and I first started out, um, with a blog and just emailing every press rep for every show asking if I could write about it. After a couple of years, I joined the outer Critics circle and the drama desk. And I covered the Tony Awards, which was the best night of the year for me, no matter who won. It was the most exciting, wonderful time. And then I was hired at playbill.com in 2013 as the features editor. And I worked there until about 2016. And while I was working there, I really began to focus on women in the industry. For some time, I was the only woman on the digital editorial side and really began diving into the issues that women were experiencing in the industry and covering them. And it again, just writing about theater, talking about it, it's always made me the happiest, the most excited, no matter what day job I've had, if it's been a tough day at work, or I'm really tired. By the time the curtain goes up at 8pm, I am completely re-energized and the happiest, <laughs> the happiest I've been that whole day.
0: Yeah, I bet the past year has been rough for you
1: then. I've been going through some withdrawal. Yes, me <laughs> I have. <too. laughs>
0: so, uh, this is a book about feminist theater. Uh, let's let's start out by getting some definitions out of the way. How do you define feminist theater for the purposes of this book?
1: For the purposes of this book, I define feminist theater as not only theater by and about women and female-identifying people that explores their narratives without judgment or the male gaze, but also theater that broadens the audience's perspective and that invites questions and personal reflection about identity and societal roles and assumptions about equality. And by equality, I mean political, economic, social, and personal. And that also inspires us to think about our own internal prejudices and biases and our responsibility to help support and advance marginalized communities. Uh, If you look at Fun Home, I'm sure we'll discuss that quite a bit (laughs) in the next hour. Not only was it a show about a woman written by women, but it was the first Broadway show that had a lesbian as its protagonist. And staging showed love scenes, these intimate physical love scenes. And the characters, one of the characters was uncertain and hesitant and awkward, but it was also beautiful. And it wasn't presented with any judgment or idealization, but simply as this person's story. And I think it was one of the most beautiful love scenes I've seen on a Broadway stage.
0: The changing my major to Joan number is going to be an audition classic for years.
1: Oh, when, um, when it's announced, when it's transferred to Broadway was announced, I remember one of my friends said, I'm changing my major to Crone. <laughs> to, uh, reference Lisa, yeah, Crone, the Lisa Crone,
0: the book writer. Yeah, that's pretty
1: good. <laughs> and, and something I've heard so many times by people whose political and social views have progressed over time is that by meeting a person and hearing or witnessing their story has helped them broaden their perspectives and see beyond their preconceived notions and reflect on their own biases. And if there are audience members at Fun Home who weren't familiar with Alison Bechtel's story and her work, I don't know how they could not have their hearts and minds opened after seeing that show. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think there's something about theater being a live event that makes that empathetic connection maybe stronger than it would be if it were like a film or a novel or something like that?
1: I think it I think it makes it strong in a unique in a way that's unique compared to mm-hmm. a or novel. I think for me personally it is stronger, but that's also speaking from a very privileged position of someone whose press seats are usually pretty close to the stage. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But there there is something beautiful, beautifully intimate about seeing the person in in 3D, seeing the person live. And yeah, yeah. definitely unique to, to screen or page and very, very special. Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the things in your very well thought out definition uh, that, that kind of caught my ear was kind of this idea of getting rid of the male gaze. Is that why you didn't really spend time in the book on, you know, male playwrights like Ibsen or Shaw, who maybe could be considered feminists, but are obviously male playwrights?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. And I'm going to respond with a question of my own. Uh, if you were interviewing the author of a book about masculinity in theater, and that author didn't include any female playwrights, would you ask them why?
0: Oh, definitely. I think so. Okay. Good I mean, ma- maybe, maybe you don't think I would. I, 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 I think I probably would.
1: Good. I, I, I did not have a preconceived notion for an answer. <laughs> uh, but to go into a little more depth in in my response. Um, My concise answer is because I had a word limit for the book. I had to keep it within Mm -hmm. a certain length and plenty has been written and will continue to be written about Ibsen and Shaw. And maybe hopefully I'll write some of it. I do enjoy much of their work and uh, the production I saw of a doll's house at BAM back in, I think it was 20, early 2014 still haunts me to this day. It was Mm -hmm. absolutely stunning. And even though I've read and seen that place so many times, I was literally on the edge of my seat during the final scenes. But I don't think enough has been written about women and female identifying playwrights, not nearly an equal amount as has been written about men. So for this bo- book, I focused on female and female identifying voices. And it's not yeah. that male playwrights can't be feminists. Some really great female roles in theater were written by men, but they've had their say, their day in the sun, and they will continue to in every theater program in America. And my goal with this book and the limited, I mean, I could have made this book five volumes, but mm-hmm. the limited amount of space I had was to highlight feminist stories that might go unrecognized by mainstream theater outlets.
0: Yeah, I feel like often when there's a desire for more female roles, it's still the same male playwrights who are writing the stories. It's it's revivals mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein shows or, or you know, like I said, Shaw or Ibsen or, or mm-hmm. Arthur Miller or, or or stuff like that. Like, it seems like Our idea of what these kind of canonically great roles, even for women, are is often constrained by the idea that, well, a a truly great playwright must be a man. Right.
1: Well, I think it's important to differentiate between what's being written and what's being produced. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of works, a lot of great new roles for women and female identifying performers. Written by women and female-identifying playwrights, but maybe they're not being produced, or they're not being produced on stages that draw mainstream audiences. There's a and ton what, of writing going on, but production is a whole different part of the industry.
0: And one of the really powerful parts of your book is that you really draw our attention to the fact that this has always been true. We're, right? We have this idea that only only men used to be able to write plays, but you mm-hmm. you point out that there were women who had plays on Broadway in the
1: 1920s and 30s, and
0: and those plays don't get revived nearly as much as the the plays by their male contemporaries
1: or and there were women writing under male pseudonyms so there's a lot of work by women that will never be credited to them and i think that's a tragedy mm-hmm. but we um, do have an idea of to to backtrack for a moment i just finished Elizabeth Warren's book persist yesterday and in the book she talks about picking up a newspaper and seeing that people have been asked to draw pictures of leaders, and every picture that had been drawn was male, was of a man. So the idea of a great artist, often people's minds will automatically go towards a male figure or a specific man. But we have the, we have the opportunity to reframe that, and we have a responsibility to reframe that, definitely, in the theater.
0: Yeah. And, and you do a little bit of that visually, just with the cover of the book, where you have a, a picture of Afra Ben, a picture of Lorraine Hansberry, and a picture of young Jean Lee. So it's a very diverse uh, and multi-epical multi, multi uh, epical, uh, portrayal of, of what, it, what it means to be a playwright. I'd love to, to talk about Afra Ben a little bit. Um, I, she's not the first playwright you write about, but she is the, the first one in your title. Could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about her and, and why you see her as, as something of a starting point for feminist theatre?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, she was. She symbolizes not only the past but the present of theater because she was the first English woman known to earn her living by writing and making an actual financial living as a as a woman or female identifying artist in theater is still still so darn difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, much is unknown and speculated about Aphra Behn because she was a woman, so her work and her role in history wasn't recorded and preserved the way men's have been. So a lot of people have projected a lot onto her as they've studied her and what, and tried to learn more about her. But what we do know is that she went, began writing for money after her husband's death. And some of her early works were tragic comedies in verse. Um, They included the forced marriage, the amorous Prince. And one of her most well-known works is the Rover. And even though her work was staged, um, critics attacked "The Dutch Lover," another one of her works, on the grounds that it was written by a woman. So she wrote another piece and responded to the critics. And I find really what I find really interesting about her is, even then, so long ago, and in such a different uh, society, she was was willing, she was noticing and putting into writing the disparities of opportunity between the genders. And she said that women were held back, not because of their lack of talent or ability, but because of their exclusion from education. And I'm, and the lack of opportunities presented to women is still an issue today. So Ben, Afro Ben is timeless in so many ways. Uh, She wrote and staged 19 plays, and she was one of the most one of the first prolific high profile female dramatists, and she's been cited as a literary role model for so many, so many authors that I studied and wrote about in my book. And uh, in Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, she mentions Afra Ben. She writes, all women together ought to let flowers fall upon the tomb of Afra Ben, which is most scandalously, but rather appropriately in Westminster Abbey, for it was she who earned them the right to speak their minds. And her tombstone is inscribed with, here lies a proof that wit can never be defense enough against mortality. Mm. I also, She also worked as a spy before she was a writer, and I just think that's really, really cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Does that show up in her place at all? Does she have 17th century spy thrillers?
1: Uh, not spy thriller that I know of, but perhaps she wrote one and published it under a male pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Because I imagine the critics would say, what's a woman doing writing about being a spy?
0: <laughs> so how do you feel like her, her portrayals of uh of, of women differ from you know male playwrights of the of a similar era like like Shakespeare? It does is there a different flavor to those portrayals given that it's coming from a woman's pen?
1: Absolutely. Um what I what I know what I noticed in my in my research and highlighted in my book was women Plays, uh, plays by and about women during that time were very often marriage focused, but more than marriage focused, they were money focused. And marriage and money were so, so toxically intertwined. And the limitations of, the limitation, economic limitations placed upon women due to their marital status just made me made me rage as I was doing my writing. Um, A lot of female playwrights from that time. We're more focused on the economic aspects of being a woman, whereas if you compare that to some of Shakespeare's most well-known female characters, they're often more focused on their relationships. And even when they're trying to gain power or money, it's often through their relationships with the men in the play that they are striving to or succeeding or failing in doing so. Uh, I mean, Shakespeare wrote some amazing, intelligent, fascinating female characters, but... I didn't see Juliet talking about how much about Romeo's net worth before Mm -hmm. she decided she wanted to marry him. Yeah. Um, And when you look at the portrayal of marriage, I mean, I've, I don't know if I've attended more weddings in real life or at the Delacorte theater at Shakespeare in the park every summer, because (laughs) I've seen so many lovely, beautiful stagings of comedies there that end in, marriages, and then the cast does that, joins hands and does that dance. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the conflicts of Shakespeare's comedies regarding marriage are usually if the people who love each other will actually get to marry each other, um, and if whoever's dressing in disguise will abandon their disguise before they actually make it to the altar. Whereas for many of these female playwrights, the purpose of marriage in their plots was often to illustrate the societal restrictions and economic injustice of the time. And when it comes to, to, to women defying these societal norms or fighting against these injustices, Shakespeare wrote some really wonderfully rebellious women, but they're often punished for their rebellion and usually by death. So it was very satisfying to see women rebelling against these norms and not being you know, strangled by their husband or, or you know, committing suicide under misinformation. And given that these female playwrights were attacked, absolutely attacked for even writing at all, it makes complete sense to me that their works would include defiant female characters fighting against how they were held back by by society.
0: And it just kind of goes to show, I mean, I feel like you always hear these uh, these defenses of historical men and historical people in power in general that, you know, this was a different time. Nobody could have possibly known better. Nobody could have had, you know, a, a different, more enlightened perspective. But when you actually look at the works that were written by women in the same period, you see, well, actually, no, there, there were more kind of uh, uh, well-rounded, more uh, kind of materially grounded uh, portrayals of, of women available. They are just not the ones that are, you know, States to the Delacorte every summer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> absolutely.
0: Um, I'd like to ask you another kind of big picture question, which mm-hmm. is for you, is feminist theater primarily about the content of the stories or is it also important to, to think about a feminist approach to theatrical form?
1: Oh, it's, it's absolutely important to think about a feminist approach to theatrical form. There's so much opportunity to communicate without using any words at all. Um, if, one of the first things that comes to mind when I think about that is the musical Waitress, which I mean, it not only did it have a creative team that was mostly female, female director, female composer, female book writer, but it bluntly staged men performing oral sex on women, which is very rare in cold cult- in on Broadway. And uh-huh often punished in entertainment. Uh, If you go back just 10 years to the movie, uh, blue Valentine that was originally going to be released with an NC 17 rating because of the scene of oral sex. But um, much as I hate to uh, use this as an an example, um, Harvey Weinstein protested that and it was, and the film was changed to an R rating Mm -hmm. or a few years after that, the movie Charlie countrymen, which starred Evan Rachel Wood, Deleted a scene of uh, Shia LaBeouf's character performing oral sex on her, and she spoke out about that on Twitter. The scene wasn't reinstated, as far as I know. But that double standard of female pleasure compared to male pleasure, and works of art being punished for portraying it, persists. Um, but seeing seeing waitress and seeing two different characters receiving pleasure through oral sex by their um, by their partners was I think, incredibly feminist. And I mean, everyone was laughing, but I was clapping <laughs> during those scenes, yeah, laughing. That's so interesting.
0: I feel like that's the other response to female sexuality. Either it is sort of condemned or it is or it is mocked.
1: I mean, when I think about the staging, they were staged in kind of comedic ways um, sure, sure, but i think I think a lot of people still experience discomfort when they think about women's sexuality and often a way of Deflecting that discomfort is to laugh, yeah, which yeah. Just it, reinforces that female sexuality should be more normalized, so people aren't so uncomfortable with it.
0: Um, I, I feel like we're we're ranging quite widely <laughs> in time in this interview, but I, I would like to talk about uh, a kind of foundational work in discussions of female sexuality, which is Lysistrata. Mm-hmm. Um, Lysistrata is sometimes seen as a sort of uh, you know feminist, left wing, anti war play. Um, but but I, I got the sense in your book that you're not fully convinced of that. Uh, so, so why do you see this show kind of falling short of being uh, a feminist piece of theater?
1: Um, excuse me, because the women in the play are still operating within the structures of a male-dominated society. Um, they do accomplish their goal of stopping the men fighting in the war, but then those men are coming home to reinforce the structures of male superiority and patriarchy. And I don't really view it as a success in that way. Um, and it's the play is viewed as a comedy, and I view it as and I view it as mocking how women struggle in a male dominated society that treats them that treats women as second class citizens. And Lysistrata is extraordinary. I mean, she, she has this sense of social responsibility. She looks beyond herself and her immediate problems. To the people around her, she worries about how she can help these people. She's an organizer. She has a vision. She gets all of these women together and works out this plan with them. But even though she has these leadership skills, this this sense of justice, of social justice, when all of these men come back from the war, she's going to go back to being to being a woman. And in that culture, she's, that makes her a second class citizen. So why does a female character like that have to exist within a satire? Why can't she be the hero of a, of a tragedy, of a drama? Why does it have to be something that mocks her problems rather than really illustrates them sincerely?
0: It is part of the issue with that show also for you that female sexuality is only really used as a tool or rather the, the kind of denial of, of access to female sexuality is, is a tool for some other goal and it's kind of not an end in itself?
1: Yes, and also that, um, that, again, women's pleasure is being mocked rather than respected.
0: Um, again, uh, going forward in time, um, mm-hmm. y- you write about how theater was used as a, as a tool for social change by the suffrage movement. And I didn't really know much about this history, so I was fascinated to learn about this. Could you tell our audience a bit about how, uh, how, how suffrage and theater kind of came together?
1: Sure. Um, well... Suffrage, the theater in the suffrage movement, put women on stage. It gave them a chance to have their voices heard by so many people, and to illustrate the issues behind the movement to large audiences. um, To put in, to put, to put in front of people the double standards that women were facing on a daily basis, and again present these problems, these social and political issues as human stories, which, which, will, which can speak to people in a way that reading a news bulletin or a handout or hearing a speech at a rally might not. Uh, it, was, it was realist theater and it was combining these everyday situations that had been normalized with, with performance so that people were accessing it in a unique way. Even if they were familiar with the issues, they might not see them performed by other living human beings in front of them, and then that might make them think, "Hey, what's happening in my home every night isn't normal and isn't right." And also, it was suffrage theater showed just how how smart and efficient and organized women can be when they are working for a cause. They these plays were often written to require no no sets, very few props. They this they were economically efficient. They allowed amateur acting companies to travel around with them, perform them perform these plays for so many people at a low cost, and to really help spread the movement. I mean, this was before before the internet, before mass media, before people could be reached in the in an instant the way we can now. But these women just just approached this with such common sense and and passion that they were able to do so much with so little and reach so many people.
0: You also devote a chapter to Lorraine Hansberry and Lillian Hellman, who are you kind of see as two trailblazing playwrights, uh, similar in, in some ways different in others. Both of them are playwrights whose feminism was part of a broader commitment to left-wing politics, and both of them also explored queer themes in their work. Um, what other connections do you see between these two writers?
1: they were both incredibly rebellious and they were able to portray, to take these themes of rebellion and these feelings of anger and frustration against the world and the societal norms that were holding so many people back and make the, and take that rebellion and make it part of these beautiful, these achingly beautiful characters that we feel so deeply for. Um, And they were able to create, um, create really compelling anti-heroes that even though they did things that the audience might not necessarily support, they couldn't, we, we still feel for the characters. I mean, Walter Lee, I don't agree with everything he does, but I and in a raisin in the sun, but I feel so deeply for how, how claustrophobic his life is and how much more that he wants. I mean, who, who hasn't wondered at one point, who gets to decide which women should wear pearls in this world? I just think that's a beautiful way of of phrasing how he how he wonders who gets to make who gets to be in charge and why and why do, are why is it why are those people the ones making these decisions? Okay. And I definitely don't support everything um, Regina Giddens does in The Little Foxes, <laughs> but I think that she's a fascinating a fascinating woman and who's obviously. Been unhappy and trapped for so long, and that she can only find a way out of her circumstances through the men in her life—men that she thinks she is smarter than and clearly has very little regard for. Um, and and also, both plays really focus on how materialism can lead to to people's tragedies and their unhappiness. Walter Lee wants to buy his wife nice things. He just wants to buy his wife pretty things, but and have and give her a nice house to live in. But because he's so fixated on that, he doesn't see or hear her when she's saying, "No, I, I don't need a new necklace. I don't need a new dress." And Regina, I mean, she kills her husband. She alienates her brothers. She loses her child all in the pursuit of money. Uh, spoiler alert for anyone who <laughs> hasn't seen <the> Little Boxes. <laughs> and I and both both of them really show. Without preaching, and but just by telling these human, these deeply human stories, they show how economic injustice does exist, and how terrible it is to so it for so many people due to these these economic structures and political structures. But also how becoming so fixated on money and possessions and things can lead to to us to our own tragedies and to hurting people that we love.
0: Yeah, that's something that comes up. Time and time again in your work, the necessity of having feminist theater that doesn't just look at women's oppression as as one issue, but looks at it as, as kind of one strand of of a kind of uh, you know tangled web of oppression that these characters are facing, involving economic oppression, class oppression, national oppression, etc.
1: Absolutely, I mean, feminism is a symptom. It's a the need for feminism intertangles with the need for so many other aspects of social justice um and i could go on and on about that but
0: <laughs> <laughs> sure i think the audience uh, takes the point. uh speaking of the kind of broader struggle for social justice that's kind of the theme of uh another of lauren hansbury's play the mm-hmm. sign in Sidney Brewstein's window which i read only recently and i really loved and it's very very different from racing in the sun it's kind mm-hmm. of a portrayal of Largely white Jewish radicals in in Greenwich Village. Yeah, um, totally so, h- how does our kind of knowledge of who Lorraine Hansberry is expand when we read that play alongside *Raisin in the Sun*?
1: Oh gosh, I mean, who she is, it, I could I, I I read so much about her, and I wish that there was so much more to read. That her life wasn't cut so tragically short. She's just mm-hmm. a fascinating person. Her life is is tr- was truly ex- extraordinary. Um, Gosh, how does our knowledge expand? I mean, I, I think it shows that it taps into her work from before she was a playwright, the mm-hmm. papers that she wrote for, the the social justice um, campaigns that she was a part of, um, the different people that her upbringing with her family, um, all the ideological movements and how they that she was a part of and how they influenced her work. Um, I think it showed that she. She wanted her writing to, to be versatile, to speak to a broad audience, um, that she didn't want to be pinpointed as a person who wrote about just one thing or just one group of people. Um, I think it shows us that there could have been so much more amazing work coming from her had she not been ill.
0: Yeah. It's a very funny play too. I I mean, there's, there's humor in Raisin in the Sun, but the sign in Sidney Bruce window is almost a comedy. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think she had, I think there was a lot more humor to her than people who perhaps have only seen or read a raisin in the sun would know about. Um, And I mean, that taps into a whole other aspect of feminism and entertainment that women are funny. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh,
0: Another pioneering uh, work of feminist theater is uh, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough by Mm -hmm. Antisaka Shange. And that's an extraordinary Play, choreo, poem, whatever you want to call it. But what's always surprising to me is thinking about how much of a hit it was at the time. Like we're so used to, you know, oh, this great work by this, you know, marginalized artist wasn't appreciated in its time, but this piece really was appreciated in its time. Yeah. It played on on Broadway and was nominated for the Tony Award for best play. So why do you think its impact was so explosive in its time?
1: Um, oh gosh. I mean, I saw the amazing revival of it at the public theater in 2019 and I don't know how I got home that night. I think I, I made it to the subway somehow. (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I I was absolutely entranced by that show. Um, I think that it was a, a combination of several things. I mean, it it's, it's amazing to think that that opened the same year as the original, the same Broadway season as the original productions of American Buffalo and California suite and Godspell and Mm -hmm a revival of guys and dolls, I think was that season. It was, I think that was a time when theater goers were really hungry for new work, um, for unique work for work that, that spoke more to the, the changes happening in our political culture then. So I think that was one aspect of it. I think that it was just so unlike anything people had seen on Broadway before. Um, how intimate it was, how unapologetic it was in showing female individuality, as well as this sisterhood between these women on stage, how it addressed things like, like sexual violence and some really, some really told some really horrifying stories. Um, and I think people were proud. I mean, from what I've read of accounts of people seeing it, people were proud to have seen it and they were telling, they were telling their friends, you have to go see this show. This is something special. Um, I mean, again, that was before, before there was, there were hashtags and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, people were texting from texting from the theater, hopefully during intermission and not show, uh, Mm -hmm. saying this is amazing and you need to buy tickets now. But, but I, I think that just how unique and how raw and pure it was, is why it was such a hit and why it's rightfully produced very frequently and seen very often. I'm so grateful I got to see it live because I'd watched recordings of it, but you know, like we said, seeing, seeing it live is something different. And it was a, really a, one of the most special nights of the theater that season for me.
0: Yeah. Do you think there's perhaps uh, a sense in which, Broadway audiences have gotten less adventurous since that time, since the 1970s. I I find it very hard to think about something as groundbreaking as as that show being on Broadway now.
1: I don't think it's Broadway audiences who are less adventurous. I think it's Broadway producers. Yeah. I think that, um, I mean, Broadway's, uh, producing something on Broadway is, you know, we know, incredibly expensive, uh, a huge risk. But I think that audiences are hungry for, for new special unique work but producers need to be able to put up the money for something that is new and special and unique and not necessarily what I call comfort food of entertainment Mm -hmm. where it's a story that we know you know it's a musical adaptation of a movie and we know how it's going to end and we're going to clap with recognition when we hear our favorite lines Um, I think they need to put up the money for things that are risky but necessary and vital and and art. Uh,
0: the 1980s saw a, a huge wave of women playwrights coming to prominence. I'm thinking of Tina Howe, Wendy Wasserstein, Marcia Norman. I actually have an anthology um, that I think is called The New Women Playwrights that was published in the late 80s. <laughs> um, who are some other playwrights from that time that you feel deserve more attention?
1: Um, I mean, she gets a lot of attention, but I want to see more of her work, Carol Churchill. Um, yeah. Beth Henley, Jane Wagner, Tina Ho, Ho, Ho or How, sorry. I'm... I think it's How. I okay. heard How. But yeah. Um, and I mean, I personally, she also gets a lot of attention, but I want to see every work that Wendy Wasserstein wrote live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of them, please. The whole season of Wendy Wasserstein stum- Somewhere for me, please.
0: <laughs> Wendy Wasserstein is my mom's favorite playwright, so she would agree with you on that. <laughs> Um, there, there was a revival of Heidi Chronicles in twenty fifteen, but it, it didn't do particularly well. Um, why do you think that was? Is it a cultural shift, or was it just problems with the with that particular production?
1: I don't think it was problems with the production. I saw that production three times and loved every minute of it each time. But I can see why Heidi's story doesn't speak to feminists now the way it spoke to feminists then. Um, it is a it's what um, on, on Zoe's extraordinary playlist, what her friend, her neighbor called champagne problems in some ways. Heidi was lonely and unhappy. And I thought Elizabeth Moss gave a beautiful and achingly beautiful performance portraying that, but Heidi wasn't saddled with student loan debt. Heidi was very successful. Heidi wasn't working you know, two or three jobs and Heidi wasn't worrying about her reproductive rights. Those are just a few of the many issues that intersectional feminists are working to protect and change now. And I can see how one might feel alienated from Heidi. Um, her her speech about feeling stranded was deeply moving to me, but there's a lot more. If, if the equivalent of that speech were spoken by an intersectional, intersectional feminist now, it would have very different content. Um, and the question of can we have it all, it's not really a question that American feminism is asking to quote um the amazing feminist theater writer Jill dolan um, for many for many women and female identifying people now they're not trying to have it all they're just trying to get by or get out of debt or get health insurance. Um, can we have any of it? <laughs> I'm not trying to make myself a spokesperson or create um create a catchphrase but I didn't see Heidi worrying about her deductible and her healthcare or, you know, talking about if she would be able to get an abortion in the state she lived in. Um, so the problems of a well-off white woman didn't really resonate with audiences in the way it did a few decades ago. Um, and feminism has rightfully expanded and will continue to expand its, um, its scope and its work And there's a lot more complexity to it than you either shave your legs or you don't. And that's and also just a lot of of people who I know would be curious to see the Heidi Chronicles, whether seeing it for the first time or seeing it as a work of history, wouldn't be able to afford a Broadway ticket. Women are still paid less. A lot of people are working two or three jobs saddled with horrible student loan debt. And they just wouldn't be able to afford a ticket to the theater.
0: I, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but I wonder if other Wendy Wasserstein plays would do better now. I'm thinking of like "Uncommon Women" and others. <laughs> seems to be a play that is is turning a bit more of a satirical eye to the the problems of upper upper middle class white feminists. So maybe that would play better today. I'm not sure.
1: I would love to see that live. I've I watched a recording of it while researching for my book, but I would absolutely love to see that live. And um, and I'm sure even just you know two years after finishing my research, I would have a hopefully even more in-depth response to it
0: um moving on to perhaps some more good news um uh we we said we talk about fun home so here's the part of the interview where we talk about fun home (laughs) i love fun home i'm i'm not uh, a a wealthy man by any means but i did shell out to see fun home twice when it was on broadway because Mm -hmm. i i thought and i thought it was so great that i i had to take my sister so we saw it together um yeah, for, for a whole host of personal reasons, that show was very impactful for both of us. But uh, we don't have to get into that. I'm interviewing you here. <laughs> so um, for you, uh, what what is
1: so revolutionary about a show like Fun Home being on Broadway? And four hours later, the interview ends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, first I'll tell you, I went to see it at the public, not knowing anything about it. Nothing. Um, and I had seen the movie of August Osage County the night before. Um, so that was a, a dark gray, wet January weekend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, when I got home that night, um, uh, my roommate had seen the Cherry Jones, uh, starring Glass Menagerie that day. And we both just sat on the couch in the dark <laughs> for about an hour. <laughs> <We> just, <laughs> neither of us could even get up and turn on the lamp. <laughs> We're like, what do we do now? <laughs> um, there's so many things about Fun Home or Revolutionary that I know I, I won't be able to speak to all of them, but I mean, first off, let's think about how many stories are about fathers and sons mm-hmm. compared to fathers and daughters. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, a butch lesbian protagonist being the the center of the story, uh, showing that the, the musicals success showed that plays and musicals can tell stories about women that sell tickets and have an impact and speak to people. People often dismiss women's stories as not being universal enough, but this is one of the many examples that show they are. Um, people went back to see that show so many times. Um, the, and it's not only the story they tell, but how they tell it, the way they staged it both at the public on the proscenium stage and in the round were, were both beautiful and moving and intimate. Um, the, the pastiche music, the, the, the small cast interchange, the characters interchanging, um, oh, it just, that show speaks to me so much. Sometimes it's hard to speak about it. Um, mm-hmm. and one thing I, I went into some detail and in, in my chapter about fun home in my book was the character of the mother and, and her expression of her unhappiness and showing how, even though on this, on the surface or to a neighbor at the grocery store, seeing her, she might, she might seem to quote, have it all this big, beautiful house, this successful husband who's so cultural three, three lively children. But she was so, so unhappy and so melancholy. And hearing Judy Kuhn sing days and days and days broke my heart. Each of the three times I saw that show. Um, And then getting to experience a woman's story through three different ages in her life was such a gift to see the the innocent joy and excitement and wonderment of small Allison singing Ring of Keys, to see the rapture of her first sexual romantic experience in college with medium Allison, to see the how Beth Malone so beautifully embodied all of this confusion and anger and grief in adult Allison. I mean, what a gift to get to know that character in all those different ways in just about 90 minutes mm-hmm. and to, to show the world that queer women have important, vital, beautiful, universal stories to tell and that they can and should be res- represented in commercial musical theater and win a ton of Tony Awards. <laughs> I was in the press room at the Tonys that year and I was... I was on the edge of my seat, and I was cheering when, when Fun Home won. Yeah, I,
0: when, you, when you mentioned how Fun Home kind of follows this one woman over the course of a good portion of her life, that reminds me of Heidi Chronicles. It, mm-hmm. it, I wonder if in some ways the, the creators of Fun Home were looking back at Heidi Chronicles as, as kind of a, a forerunner of, a, of the type of structure they wanted to use in their story.
1: Um I don't know. I I interviewed them a couple of times I was working at playbill.com when Fun Home opened on Broadway and um sort of sell assigned myself <laughs> the show as of yeah, right the Fun East. Home. Meet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was I was running down uh 50th Street one day to go meet Janine Tessori and Lisa Crone to interview them and I bumped into a friend and said, "I can't talk. I'm going to meet Janine Tessori and Lisa Crone and you know, just kept running cuz I was running late and and she just said, "Okay then." <laughs> That's a good excuse. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I don't. I, I really don't know if they um, if they look to Heidi Chronicles or not, but I do think that seeing um, seeing Allison embodied in three different people um, made it especially powerful to you know not, not to go too much into my own personal life, but to see her as this funky child who just didn't really. At times, didn't seem to have an outlet for all of her energy, or you know, was told to to be quiet and to be pretty, and you know, put her beret in her hair and and put on that frilly dress her father wanted her to wear, and to be a child who wanted to make her parents happy, even though to adults in the audience we could see that her parents were unhappy, but it wasn't her fault. Uh, just to see that innocence embodied in that beautiful performance by Sydney Lucas—I mean, my gosh—that. I am I can't wait to see what what she does next in her career what a gifted mm-hmm. person. Uh I think seeing her as a child really contributed to to the power of the show and seeing how this child grew into this young woman and then this adult and cheering for her on her journey even though there's so much tragedy in it.
0: Yeah. Um one of the other issues you write about in the book is uh how far we still have to go before we reach any kind of gender parity. I, I saw a number that said something like 87% of directors on Broadway are men, which is just mm-hmm. kind of an incredibly uh, skewed number, especially when, I mean, there are so many great women directors who've proven themselves kind of capable of, of handling that big of a, that big of a stage, both, you know, literally and metaphorically. So um, could you, could you talk about uh, kind of what are some of the efforts that are ongoing in favor of gender parity and and kind of which ones you find most promising, most exciting?
1: Oh gosh. (laughs) Well, um, to to respond first to that number being shocking, um, I think it's important for everyone to keep in mind that very often women's successes are seen as the outlier, not the norm. And that we place that when women are, are the outlier, the one female director of that season or the, you know, the one female who, um, the one female who's helming a big multi-million dollar musical, a lot of responsibility and representation is placed on that. Very often if a woman directs a play and it's not a financial success, people use that to support their, their idea or their prejudice that women can't be in charge of big musicals because they just don't make the money. But I've never seen that standard applied to, um, to male directors. Mm-hmm. Or for example, um, if a a play by a man doesn't do well, I never hear people saying, you know, male playwrights just don't do that well, they don't make enough money. But if there's one play by a woman, and it doesn't make it doesn't recoup its investment, people will use that as a reason to support their statement that female plays don't make money. So women's successes are seen are often seen as the outlier, not the norm. And very frequently in many industries like hires, like uh, people will hire people they're familiar with. They're comfortable with. So they hire people who look like them or who, ex- or who um, think like them or like the same things that they like. So frequently people will assemble creative teams made up of people who are of the same demographics as them. And that results in lack of diversity and lack of parity. Um, and there's a, a an ongoing and, in my opinion, ridiculous bias that women don't know how to handle multi million dollar productions, or you can't trust a woman with an expensive investment. Um, but how are you going to prove, if you are a woman who's a director, how are you going to prove that you can handle that responsibility and that you can manage that money if you're not ever given the chance to prove it, if you're not ever given the opportunity to helm a musical? Or an expensive play on Broadway. Um, and there is a lot of work being done towards parity right now. Uh, there are tons of organizations advocating for gender parity in the industry. The original goal for many groups was 50 50 by 2020, and that did not happen. So I'm not sure if we have a new deadline set or not. But there are organizations, so many organizations, there's no way I'll name them all but there's the Women in Arts and Media Coalition, the League of Professional Theatre Women, Parody Productions, the Lily Awards, there are organizations like Girl Be Heard, all helping to support artists, performers, creators, creatives, um, and to hold people accountable. Uh, I am not on Twitter myself because I had to meet the deadline for this book, and I knew I wouldn't if I stayed on Twitter. But I do think it's very important to hold theaters and organizations accountable for their programming. And if we see a lack of diversity in their programming to speak up and say, and ask them, why is this happening? Um, One study that I read in my research said that plays by women sell an average of more than more than 3000 more seats per week than plays by men. So this has been proven that women's stories sell, but they need the chance to sell those tickets. So I think that supporting supporting artists, nurturing works, showing up for small off Broadway productions, and saying that you love them, telling people about them, telling people to go see them, and saying this should transfer, this should be on Broadway, this should this should be played to a larger audience—all of that is so vital. Uh, I worked as a nanny while writing this book, and through my through my childcare, I met a lot of theater lovers who had significantly higher incomes than I did, <laughs> and they would frequently text me or ask me at um, at school pickup what they should go see. And I usually recommended off Broadway shows to them in smaller houses because I wanted them to put their money towards those organizations, towards those theaters, towards those playwrights. And then, if they enjoyed those shows and told me they enjoyed them, I would say, then you know, write to the write to this nonprofit or write to this theater or tell, tell, tell them that you'd like to see it in a bigger house. Tell, tell your friends to go see it. Um, You know, share, if you're on social media, share the reviews of this show that are positive. Uh, Basically I told people who had more money than me to go put their money towards theater. Um, And most of them were very, very happy with my recommendations. So there's a lot of work to do and there's a lot of work being done. And we do have a very, very long way to go. Um, And, my book is just one of many, many written works about feminist theater. And I hope that anyone who reads it and enjoys it will read many more books about it and follow a very diverse range of, um, theater writers, theater journalists, theater critics, and support them in their work. Um, because diversity and parody, it's much more than just gender. There's a lot of work going towards racial reckoning in the theater industry right now that I'm really happy to see and support and hope that the next Broadway season that we see is a, much, is a very rich, diverse one um, that's, telling, that's telling more of the incredibly vital, necessary, and entertaining stories out there that need to be told.
0: Well, Carrie, I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. It was really a pleasure to get to talk to you. I'm sorry.